0: Oh, let's get it. Monday, April 19th, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope you had a great week outside of podcast land. Now, We've been doing video versions of the interviews of Born the Battle on VA's YouTube channel. However, they've just been audio with a static slate for our guests, of our guests. Uh, For the past, well, I don't know, forever, I've been trying to figure out a better video version of Born the Battle. Uh, I've got limited manpower, bandwidth, tech, you know, all these excuses. But I think I've come up with something that I can, I think I can sustain every week and I wanted to keep the same production quality as episode 235 with the secretary. But we don't get access to that studio all the time. Plus, a lot of guests are remote, especially with COVID. So I had to figure out a workflow that fits that fits to the remote interviews as well. It'll continue to evolve, but I think I figured out enough to start posting them on a regular basis as we filter them in with those that didn't get video. And eventually it'll become a regular thing. So look to start seeing the, some of those on YouTube starting around episode 239, and it's and it goes straight into the interviews. There's none of me running my suck and all that. No, no news releases or anything like that. If you're just looking for just the interviews, great way to go. Couple ratings and a couple reviews this week. I also learned from a blog comment on blogs.va.gov that it's Coxon, not Cox Swain, like I said in the previous episode. Uh, appreciate that, Jeff. Uh, The first review, however, is from Poop is Stinky. Appreciate appreciate that. Whoever uh, just wanted me to say that on the podcast, well, there you go. Poop writes five stars from a VA employee. This podcast is awesome, not only for veterans, but for VA employees as well. I'm not a veteran myself, but I work closely with veterans every day in my job, and I love hearing their stories and benefits breakdowns on your show. It helps me better connect with veterans and guide them to the many resources VA has to offer. Most importantly, it reminds me why I love my job and working with veterans. Uh, Poop is stinky. Glad to hear this, especially the fact that you're able to take the benefits breakdowns and point veterans to those offices, resources, and benefits. Uh, I also appreciate what you do and thank you for writing in. Second review is from Ralph745. One of the best episodes so far. Listening to this episode was so fulfilling. Knowing there are nonprofits out there doing great work for veterans was so encouraging. Please keep up the great work and keep bringing guests that have many things to offer to fellow veterans. Great job. I appreciate you writing in, Ralph. I think you're referring to the last episode with Rear Admiral Retired Dan Kloipel. Yes, uh, totally agree. Through the nonprofits, him and his wife, have started they have helped many veterans find sustainable careers Uh, and i'm glad we got their story here on the podcast as great as that is and i will continue to bring those episodes like dan's sometimes uh folks in the community all we're looking for is is hearing someone in a similar boat and hearing how they got past their demons climbed their mountains and became a success after service and i know success is relative but you know what i mean Uh, I'm also going to continue to bring you those episodes as well. Thank you for the review, Ralph, and I appreciate you writing in. Always appreciate the feedback every week, especially with Apple podcast reviews. They're not only a good way to communicate directly with your show, and it is your show, but those reviews help get Born the Battle recognized by more veterans in podcast land by bringing us higher up in the algorithms on the app. So appreciate it in advance. We got three news releases uh, that are pretty long. Pretty detailed. So I'm going to do my best to break them down in bullets, like one of the previous reviewers suggested. First one was a statement by VA Secretary McDonough on the president's uh, discretionary funding request for fiscal year 2022. Basically, it's a statement that breaks down what the White House asked Congress in funding in a funding request. And that request was $113.1 billion in funding for the VA. Which broke down to 97.5 billion for VA medical care, 2.1 billion for veterans homeless programs, 542 million for vet- to support veterans suicide, 882 million for medical and prosthetic research and development, 2.7 billion to continue modernizing the VA's electronic health record, and if this request is taken up and passed. will also go to IT, cloud modernization, and other IT services. Uh, Whitehouse.gov has the full request. Not only has VA has other stuff in it and press releases to go with it. The second news release was of the secretaries of VA and Housing and Urban Development. They both released a joint statement on ending veteran homelessness In this statement, they talked about how they plan to use the $10 billion in American Rescue Plan in conjunction with the $213 billion in the American Jobs Plan to accomplish that goal. Uh, Some of the bullets were, make ending veteran homelessness a top priority, lead with an evidence-based housing first approach, reach underserved veterans, ensure the delivery of quality supportive services, and increase the supply of and access to affordable housing. How they plan to do it was pretty detailed in that press release and is outlined in the entire statement. Okay. And the third one says for immediate release, Secretary Dennis McDonough recently established a 120 day task force on April 1st to conduct a whole of VA review and to design and implement a holistic and integrated VA mission on inclusion, diversity, equity, and access says VA strives to provide quality care and services to all veterans regardless of age, race, ethnicity, gender, and sexual identity, but a 2019 Government Accountability Office report revealed that veterans from underserved communities continue to face barriers to accessing VA health services. The task force is charged with providing concrete and actionable recommendations addressing inclusion, diversity, equity, and access to the secretary no later than July 31st and we will focus on five objectives, and those are Ensure execution of requirements outlined in Executive Order 13985 and any other subsequent and relevant executive orders. Examine and develop VA's strategic mission, goals, and objectives on inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. Conduct a whole of VA review on policies, programming, training, and strategic communication for workforce and veterans initiatives. Identify opportunities to leverage data to inform and operationalize inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. And finally, develop institutional access points for underserved communities to establish strategic partnerships with VA. As always, to read all VA press releases in their entirety, you can go to va.gov forward slash OPA forward slash press rel. That's P-R-E-S-S-R-E-L. Alright, this week's guest is an Army veteran, is a board-certified licensed clinical psychologist with over 20 years of experience working with military service members in the treatment of PTSD, depression, anxiety disorders, and other behavioral health disorders. She specializes in providing cognitive behavioral therapy and other evidence-based therapies for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, military sexual trauma, and insomnia. She has also served as a clinical supervisor, educator, and professor at community colleges, military institutions, and universities. She has presented at symposia for the American Psychological Association and the National Academy of Neuropsychology, and has abstracts and journal articles published in archives of clinical neuropsychology, The Clinical Neuropsychologist, and The Psychological Assessment. She is now recently the new director of the Stephen A. Cohen Military Family Clinic at Easter SEALs whose mission is to provide high quality care and accessible behavioral health care to veterans, active duty service members, their families, and caregivers. Their services are available to any person who has served in the U.S. Armed Forces, including the National Guard and Reserves, regardless of role or discharge status. So, without further ado, I give to you, Army Veteran, Dr. Annika Vanderbrook. enjoy. first question we always ask here on the battle, in the battle. First of all, thank you for being here. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, first question we always ask is, when and where did you know that military service was going to be the next step in your life?
1: So, um, and thank you for having me here. I'm, I'm really excited. So, I um, was very fortunate to get something called the health professions scholarship for my doctoral program. And really prior to learning about that um, scholarship opportunity, I never, ever, ever thought I was going to be in the military. Um,
0: So this was right out of high school?
1: This was actually in my doctoral program. So I was like 24, 25 when I applied for the scholarship. And um, I just had never thought that like the military would be a thing for me or, you know, I just didn't, imagine, I would say I didn't even have a very clear idea of um, what really happened in the military, like other than, you know, people go off somewhere and fight wars, but like really had no sense of the variety of jobs and opportunities and things like that. Yeah. And um, I was very fortunate to uh, be awarded this scholarship. and uh, And ultimately, like they pay for grad school and you pay them back with, uh, service time.
0: So did did the Army send you to, to Nova Southeastern for your doctorate?
1: So I had already been accepted to Nova, and in um, the first year or so, I heard about the scholarship, which you typically apply for uh, in your second year, or it, it, the scholarship starts in your second year, and Nova had um, historically had a student accepted for the scholarship like every year. So there were people a year or so ahead of me, um, who were on the scholarship and there was another student who was active duty, but on, I forget the official term, but like on release to go do civilian training in order to attend
0: temporary graduate
1: duty. school. Yeah. And so, um, You know, so I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of other people who were in service or in the scholarship program and kind of go from there.
0: Okay. So that's where you heard about it from other students. Mm -hmm. Got you. Um, Nova Southeastern, uh, is it university, college?
1: It's a university. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Between Fort Lauderdale and Miami, not a bad place to do your doctorate. Got to admit. That's where, I mean, that's where the entire country is going for spring break and like you're living there.
1: Yeah. And I, I'm from Michigan. So, you know, you apply to grad school in the like fall and winter and I got the um, acceptance letter and it was like minus 30 degrees. Like it was the middle of a really bad polar vortex. And I was like, I am going to go to Florida, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so you joined, the, so you did finish your doctorate, joined the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, what years were you at Tripler and Walter Reed?
1: So um, my first year on um, active duty, I was at Fort Gordon. That was 98, 99. And then at the 25th, starting in 99 for about two years, and then at Tripler for another two years, um, finishing out my service obligation.
0: What year did you get out of the the military? Uh, In
1: 2002.
0: Okay. So you were probably just starting to see veterans return the initial, like September 11th attacks and initial deployments?
1: So um, we really weren't seeing them at that point in time, especially because it was, you know, Pacific operations. And so the troops that were deploying w- weren't really coming from the Pacific area early on. Gotcha. Um, so I didn't have, at that point in time, I did have veterans like coming out of Bosnia, for instance, and things like that, but not. Coming back from um, the Middle East at that point. Okay.
0: So, what was behavioral health like that before, like before September 11th, and how has that changed?
1: So, um, you know, at the at the infantry division, because there really wasn't uh, deployments happening, what there wasn't the kind of op tempo that we've seen in the last almost 20 years now. Um, It looked a bit different because, and and these things still happen, like we see people coming to their first duty assignment and Hawaii is a long ways away from family and from the mainland and there's a lot of cultural differences. So seeing people with adjustment issues and then people with PTSD and other things, but I would say it was less prevalent than we see now because of the, you know, the intervening years that and the things that have happened um yeah. with the active duty folks since that time,
0: gotcha, so you got out in two thousand and two while you were in who would give me either your best friend or your greatest mentor mm-hmm.
1: so i I would say my year group of like first year people that did internship with me at Fort Gordon were really good friends to me because we were all kind of on the same, like experiencing the same things for the first time together. And um, I had a supervisor there uh, named Gary Southall. He's a major at the time and he got promoted along and he actually um, PCS to Hawaii about the same time I did. So I continued to work with him and he was a great mentor and really helpful to me in like learning uh, you know how to be the division psychologist, which is very different from being a student or a graduate student or a student in training and internship.
0: So you went from Fort Lauderdale to Hawaii. Mm. Not a not a bad place to like start a career. Mm-hmm. Um, not a so bad place to start a career. <laughs> yeah. um, what was your transition like for for when you got out? Um, did Did you automatically end up at Easter Seals, or was there a career in between? Um, How did you, how did you make that military transition initially?
1: So I I was very, very fortunate in that um, I transitioned out to a civilian, civilian position doing exactly what I had been doing at Tripler. So that was working um, in the outpatient behavioral health clinic um, and in primary care as a psychologist. Uh, And so you know, in terms of um, of career transitions, it was also a little bit different, I, I would say, because I was a psychologist on active duty, that translates pretty easily to the type of work you, you would do as a civilian sure. versus, you know, sometimes like the, some of the people that have careers that are more specific to the military, it's like you have to learn to speak a different language, even though the skills that a sergeant may have in the infantry about management and all of these things actually translate really well. Yeah, but it's often hard to sort of describe it in a way that employers understand or, you know, civilians understand. For for a lot of the, I'll just use professional folks like doctors, psychologists, lawyers, in some ways the transition is a little bit easier because it's much more parallel to what the civilian counterparts may do. And I specifically came back to tripler, like doing, seeing the same, same clients that I had seen the week before. I just put on different clothes in the morning.
0: Oh, so you went back to the DOD as as, as working the same, same gig. Interesting. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. How did you get out of that? What was the reason that, how, why would you, why would you leave the, you know, the island, you know, Hawaii and, Mm -hmm. and now we're in Maryland.
1: So I was in a dual military family and my um, husband was also active duty and um, we, you know, we sort of went back and forth about what to do as my service obligation, you know, was coming to an end and um, he was a medical doctor. And so we knew that he was going to be PCS several times and um, we wanted to have children. So there was a lot of things that kind of went into the, you know, decision making about transitioning out. Um, He had a much longer service obligation. So that that was like, not it wasn't like he could get out and I could stay in. So
0: um,
1: in the interest of being able to be in the same place, they were talking about duty assignments for me that would not have been with him um, as my next PCS. And that wasn't compatible with like the, having children. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Mhm. Hats off for, for those that do the dual military and are able to do it for 20 years. It's uh it's really, a difficult it's, gig sometimes.
1: It really is.
0: So so you got out, you were working for the government, you were working for DOD. Uh, was it a more combat like more compatible fit at that point for your family plan?
1: Um yes, because then a year later um we he, my my husband and consequently I had a PCS Uh, because he finished his training and went to his first operational assignment, which was at Fort Hood. Mm. Um, And he deployed from there uh, uh, shortly after we arrived.
0: Very good. Very good. How long did you work for the DoD? Uh,
1: So I, I worked uh, at Tripler for a year and then I was off and, Teaching some graduate courses and things like that, because we kept moving, which Uh is this challenge for military spouses like, you know, you move and it's so hard.
0: I'm surprised the DOD didn't move your job with you
1: so we weren't exactly i mean you know yeah. it's it's a difficult situation and so um and i had a baby like just mm-hmm. a little wa- a little ways after we moved and so just it would would have been complicated but sure the, um, sure, sure sure um so i it just do was like hit or miss things that i did for a few years and then when we got to um Maryland and I we had decided like this was gonna be sort of our last stop. Yeah. Uh I
0: kind
1: of reached it. <laughs> <laughs> <on> PCSing, um <laughs> or at least like we're gonna homestead for a while. And so sure. um I reached out. I was very fortunate that, you know, a lot of the people that I had worked with on active duty were were here. Um, on active duty or students I knew that had also had, um, that I'd worked with or who had, um, been in the HPSP scholarship program, things like that. I just connected with the network again, and I was very fortunate to get hired at Walter Reed. Uh, hmm. so, you know, just came home basically to, to the same kind of work with the military, uh, doing the, the work that I love really.
0: So at that point, you must've seen a, that, the big shift and the types of therapy and the types of veterans returning from the wars. How is that stint at Walter Reed different than your initial stint at Tripler?
1: So definitely a big shift towards um, the um, trauma type work, like PTSD type work post-deployment. And of course um, at Walter Reed it was, where um like most of the people that needed amputations or it had, had really severe injuries were being sent for long periods of medical treatment. So that was very different than um the types of folks that you know I was seeing uh initially in um at Tripler when I had been there and it had been it had been about 5 years that I like wasn't Seeing those kinds of patients, so there was a big shift over that course of time because we're talking about 2002 to 2007. So 2007, yeah. were in. You know, there had been surges and there had been, um, you know, uh, really uh, intense periods of combat that these uh, that these soldiers, uh, for the most part at Walter Reed, had gone through, and so a lot more trauma type work and um a lot of people that were in the like med board process and and things like that sure. so and that that further you know complicates the the experience of what guys are going through
0: probably a sense of uh for a lot of people you know worthlessness at that point probably mm-hmm. in, in their lives uh being rejected almost i'm 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 sure
1: uh, definitely. And, you know, it's it's a difficult thing if you think, you know, for many of us, like a lot of meaning comes from our work and yeah. from our military service. And so to face not being able to do that and um, a lot of times the medical board process, I don't think it's intended to be a rejection, it's a, you know, but it, it feels like a rejection. It can feel like yeah. being fired, like a yeah. very slow drawn out firing, you know, yeah. and over the course of two or three years or something. And I mean, it's, it's, it's devastating. It's really difficult. For, I've seen,
0: for, it. For, I've seen, I've seen a lot of service members that, that, yeah. that feeling and, and you want, you want to help to, cause it's like, it's, that's not what it is. It's, uh, you know, and then, you know, on top of that, maybe dealing with survivor's guilt and, you know, on, on all Absolutely. these different, uh, PTSD, you know, symptoms that we, we, we saw, um, Okay, so you were at Walter Reed for for how many years?
1: So I was at Walter Reed until two thousand seventeen.
0: Gotcha. And so yep. ten years. hmm hmm So did you specialize in cognitive behavioral therapy the entire time? Gotcha. Are are there were there different therapies that were being employed as well?
1: So um th- Yes. So we talk about people having different like approaches or strategies to therapy. So some people may have more um, like psych- psychoanalytic approach or some people have, there's, there's various like
0: Humanistic different, and different,
1: exactly. like I, different,
0: Yeah, I have a very, very rudimentary, you know, initial class. So like, I don't know much about, I just know that there's different types of therapies for different things. And I just didn't know if if the DOD and VA and you know is, is it is it are they is it just human or cognitive behavioral or are they trying different things?
1: So um, the the VA uh, really focuses on providing evidence based care. So they look at all the research that's out there on um, different treatments, say for PTSD, yeah. and um, and the medications and the various types of therapy the research really supports cognitive behavioral therapy um, or treatments that are like prolonged exposure therapy or cognitive processing therapy that they are foundationally cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, There's very specific treatment protocols in in, in those two approaches. But um, so it's always been my thing, like from, you know, coming up through graduate school, but uh, in order to be, you know, the most effective providers and and caretakers that we can to um, the veterans and the active duty service members that are coming in, it really requires that you use evidence-based care and that you know the research sure. and that you are able to apply those those sure. types of treatments.
0: Gotcha. In in the therapy world, in the therapist world, uh, psychologists, is it is it almost like i am x and i and this person is y and it's it's very um segregated is it like based on based on the way that you're able to 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 give care
1: it's 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 pro- it's probably uh, segregated makes it sound like we might not like each other sure sure <laughs> 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 But, um, it, you know, Segmented. you tend to have, yeah, you tend to have like kind of your approach, you know, and people might mix it up a little like, um, you know, three cups CBT cognitive behavioral therapy and like a pinch of humanistic or a pinch of something else. But people are tend to kind of have the approach that makes sense to them and they're comfortable with and, and sort of stick with that.
0: Gotcha. Well, you are a cognitive... Behavioral therapist, um, can you break down what that is?
1: Sure. So, um, cog- cognitive behavioral therapy. So, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, um, and I am trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and, gotcha. Fundamentally, what cognitive behavioral therapy says is our emotions, our feelings, like happy, sad, frustrated, angry, whatever, and our behavior. So I decided to lay in bed all day or something, Come from our thoughts. And uh, so something happens, a situation happens, we get stuck in traffic and we think something about being stuck in traffic. We think uh, nothing ever goes right for me and we feel hopeless or defeated or we think my boss is going to yell at me when I get to work and we feel anxious. And so the therapy focuses on, you know, what you're thinking and saying to yourself. If you're saying to yourself, my boss is going to fire me, is that accurate or not? Is it helpful? How can we kind of challenge it? And then what could you do that would, what could you do or say that would be more helpful? Um, And so cognitive behavioral therapists tend to like be really interested in that kind of chain of events, right? Something happens, you think something, you feel and do something in response to those thoughts.
0: Gotcha. So deep, deep unpacking of a initial thought that come to your brain. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Very good. Very good. Very good. Um, how did you get to, uh, the Cohen medical family clinic?
1: So, uh, I was at, I was at Walter Reed for a long time and it was great. And my coworkers were fantastic. Um, And um, I just occasionally would like sort of check out what else was going on. And the Cohen Clinic was getting ready to open. And um, I just, I love the mission. I love um, that they serve everybody, regardless of their discharge status, regardless of their benefit status, because, um, you know, in the VA or in the DOD, you know, MTF system, you really only see people that have benefits. And there are a lot of veterans who don't. And often they may be the people that are most in need of of help and um, behavioral health treatment. So I just was really attracted to it. And I was ready to, you know, just mix it up. I've been in one place for a long time to try something new. Um, and uh, so, you know, so that's how it happens.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you've been the new director, I think, since August, right? Yes. Uh, August of 2020, congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. are, now are these clinics similar to, to VA vet centers? I see a lot of, a lot of parallels with the VA vet centers, family therapy. Um, and we did a benefits breakdown with the director for VA vet centers back in our archives as well. So if you're listening to that, please check that out. Um, but I mean, are, are these similar to what those are?
1: Um, so there's a couple differences. And one okay. is, um, you know, typically to access the VA vet centers, or anything that's VA associated, you have to have the, uh, the VA benefits. Um, the other is that we will see any family member and that family member is as defined by the veteran.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and we will see active duty and active duty family members. So uh, someone who's living, you know, with their partner or girlfriend or boyfriend, that person is also eligible for services okay uh, and we and we serve children as young as four years old, which i don't I don't think that the vet centers do though I'm not hundred percent positive
0: i know I know vet centers from what I got from that benefits breakdown that i that I referenced um the their director talked to me about if if they're eligible for services, it's more of a prolonged care, but if they're not eligible service, for services they'll still bring them in and then point them to someone like this clinic that the Stephen Koenig military family clinic where they, where they could get service. So there's still an initial service there and, and they will get to people in the right direction. Um, do you guys have a close relationship with the vet centers? We
1: really do with the, with the VA, the vet center. And um, since our clinic is, is local to um, Silver Spring and um, Walter Reed, we get yeah. referrals from all of those places. We know that right. um, the, the, the need exceeds the capacity of the system and so we really work uh, in cooperation with uh, all of those other entities so we are not part of the VA so our records for instance don't you know connect in any way with the VA so the VA doesn't see our notes they don't know anything that's happening if somebody seeks care with us.
0: Gotcha let's I know it's important for some Um, Mm -hmm. I had no idea that these clinics were a thing at all until uh, David Muir, uh, he brought it back up in his episode and, and when we were talking about Easter Seals Veteran Staffing Network back in, uh, I want to say it was in around episode 220. Uh, so if you're, if you're, again, if you're listening to this, uh, check out that episode as well. He was talking about resources that, that Easter Seals had in that category of for veterans and looking for a career. But yeah, I had no idea that these clinics were a thing until he brought it up. Um, there no, there's 16 of these clinics, right?
1: There's 19 now, and 19, 19, wow. and they're they're expecting to have 25 open um, by about the end of the year this year. So it's been really rapid growth. Our clinic opened in 2017, which is when I came over as deputy director, and um, we were the about the seventh clinic that opened at that time. So since 2017, an, an additional 12 clinics have already opened it's really been very wow. rapid expansion and growth
0: you know I one nonprofit to, to fund 16 19 20 20 clinics you know I'm seeing a lot of other nonprofits trying to build rehabilitation centers for homeless veterans things like this uh, and many of them have a plan to have in-house mental health facilities because I think it's I think it's safe to say and even the Secretary of Veterans Affairs when I interviewed him Um, mental health, there's, there's a shortage, not just in the military community, not in the veteran, not just in the veteran community, but just overall, as mental health is becoming more and more accepted, it's becoming a, a more, a scarcer and scarcer resource, I think, just in general. Um, But it seems like, I mean, a lot of money is needed to run, run of these.
1: My clinic is a collaboration between the Cohen Veterans Network and Easter Seals. In the other clinics, it's a collaboration between um, Cohen Veterans Network and another local community partner that um, serves either mental health or um, veterans that then agreed to this partnership in order to open these clinics. So Easter Seals uh, has this clinic. The other 19 have different community partners with the Cohen Veterans Network as the sort of umbrella under which we all fit.
0: Interesting. So Cohen's Veteran Net- Network is different than Easter SEALs.
1: Correct. So it's a collaboration between the two. And um, S- Steve Cohen is uh, sort of originated this with very generous grants uh, to stand up these clinics because his son served in the Marines and came back, uh, with, you know, trauma and things uh, from his experiences. And, you know, in talking with his father about like the difficulty that he was seeing his fellow Marines have in getting care and that there really needs to be additional options and resources out there that led to, uh, you know, establishing the Cohen veterans network and, and this network of clinics.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, just due to the scarcity of mental health uh, facilities. And, and like I said, I, I you think it's, would you agree that that it's not just a, a military and, and veteran population problem of not having enough mental health, but just an overall population?
1: Oh, I would absolutely agree. And I say within the profession, we kind of, that's been a known thing for a few decades even. Um, <laughs> and it's difficult because, um, graduate school is very expensive, it's difficult to afford, there are not enough opportunities for people to get graduate education, like there's not enough programs. And so there's like a pipeline issue of getting people into the profession. It's definitely not just the military. But then whenever you're dealing with like a special population, like the military, you're looking for like a really special subset of people that provide behavioral health services.
0: For sure. Instance. Sure. Um, So there's a, there's a pipeline issue. Is there a, once you're through the pipeline, is there a capacity issue to get hired? uh,
1: Because of that pipeline, it's not terribly difficult to get hired. Like I think it's, it's it's a seller's market a little bit for, um, you know, uh, people who are interested in working in the field.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. I always like to learn about different industries and and, and mm-hmm. how it's going and stuff like that. V- very interesting. Um, how has treatment been in the age of COVID uh, with with mental health treatment going to telehealth and, and how has your clinic been able to adapt to that?
1: So prior to a year ago, we already had telehealth services and about 30, 40% of our clients were already using telehealth which was so fortunate in hindsight, because we knew how to do it. We yeah. didn't have everybody, not all of our clients knew how to do it, but 30 to 40% did. So in about a week, we were able to just do a total 180 and have hundred percent of the people transition to telehealth. Um, and what really changed for our clinicians was working from home because we had always been based in the clinic. Um, but we've definitely seen, um, an increase in requests for services. We've seen, um, prior clients that had, you know, been discharged in the last three years returning for additional services. Sure. We're seeing, um, more intense symptoms and, um, a higher rate of people reporting like suicidal ideation and things. when when about a 30% increase in the frequency that people are reporting. 30%.
0: Um, mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's been a tough year for everybody.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, How, I mean, so your tempo is probably just spiked.
1: We're we're busy. I mean, we, we definitely um, keep the schedule full and um and we're also aware that people are staying a little longer in treatment, you know, by a session or two, I think because of the the increased sort of intensity of symptoms um, that people are experiencing right now. It will be interesting to look back on this when it's really, truly behind us to see how it's changed things and what's happened with, um, you know, with this experience.
0: Sure, sure. Um What's been the biggest difference uh, between treating veterans now versus your active duty during the active duty, like military? What are some different, are there any different, um, and I'm sure COVID has probably skewed this a little bit, but is there any different type of things that are popping up that you would see in a veteran that normally you wouldn't see, that you would see that would be different in active duty?
1: one of the big differences um, for veterans versus active duty is that um, you're more likely to have like employment issues, transition issues, homelessness, financial issues, food insecurity um, that, you know, you're fairly protected from when you're on active duty because you have housing and you have access to medical care and things like that. So we know that part, part of the thing that's so nice about Easter Seals is we really have these wraparound services that include things like you talked to Dave from Veterans Staffing Network. We have employment. We have case management. We have um, the Veterans uh, Reintegr- Homeless that's Reintegration Program. We have a lot of wraparound services because these behavioral health problems don't exist like in some kind of isolation. They exist in the context of these other challenges, like life stressors and things happening. And those effects have been magnified by COVID and they've been magnified even more so for veterans. So like the impact of uh, unemployment for COVID is magnified for the veteran population. It's worse, higher rates than compared to the general population. So, um, you know, that's, contributes to what we see and the needs that we see that with people coming in for, for the support that they need. Uh,
0: Within cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, what's been the, what's been a, a, a prevalent or more a very successful type of treatment that you've seen with veterans?
1: Mm -hmm. So um, both cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy are like the gold standard treatments for PTSD. That is, the, they have very strong um, scientific evidence around their efficacy. Okay. Um, I love both of them. I'm certified in both of them because uh, it's very rewarding to work with somebody who's really been struggling over the experiences that they've had in the past and help them uh, you know, process that, make sense of it, and reduce their symptoms of PTSD and see the quality of life improvements.
0: Can you give me an example of each?
1: Yeah, I can give you like a real, I'll give you a real short thumbnail and you may have tons more questions, but the VA has a fantastic website um, with PTSD resources and lots and lots of information about these treatments. Um, Cognitive processing therapy is a 12-session manualized treatment. That means like kind of, it's almost like a syllabus. You know, you go through session one, you cover certain things. Session two, you cover certain things. And it's looking at that thought piece of that situation, thought, emotion, behavior chain that I talked about. It's very, very focused on the thought piece. Okay. And prolonged exposure is very, it's also a cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's focused on the action piece of that chain. So we say situation, thought, and then emotions and behavior. So, prolonged exposure therapy gets really focused on that behavior piece, um, including like ruminative, um, you know, intrusive memories that are such a part of PTSD. Um, So, they're both cognitive behavioral therapies, they just work on different parts of the chain.
0: Gotcha. Uh, Prolonged exposure is that kind of like, hey, I have anxiety going into an interview. So I'm just going to go into a many, many different interviews and, and just kind of get used to being in that, in that uncomfortable space.
1: That is a piece of it. Absolutely. Though you okay. you don't start at the hardest thing. You start at like, you know, kind of a lower midpoint okay. and you work your way up um, through those things. And you also work your way up through um, the memories around the the traumas.
0: Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. So I wasn't aware... Of this until someone uh, within your office told me that April's is, is an awareness month for, you know, April's an awareness month for many things, but uh, it's also the the month of the military child. And you talked about uh, how your clinic uh, is eligible for, for veterans family members as, as well. Concerning the veteran, what are some basic principles that a veteran's family can do to help the veteran and their family?
1: So, um, do you mean, what the family can do to support the veteran or all around. All or, around.
0: Cause I think, I think, I think, I think, I think that it can also go go both ways, right? Like the veteran has to support those family members too, you know? Right. Yeah.
1: So much of what we work on um, a lot of times comes down to good communication skills, right? Like working mm. on um, being able to like non-defensively listen to, to your partner or your other family member and be able to make requests in a way that's effective and positive. So I think that, you know, whether you're coming in for assistance with that or it's something that you just need to start noticing and paying particular attention to, that that is a, that kind of a foundational thing to having that support is, is being able to ask for it in a way that people can respond and hear what you need being able to listen uh, in a way that's effective as other people are communicating with you. So, um, and we do, you know, it's a common theme that comes up both in individual and family and couples therapy and um, some of the workshops and groups and things like that, that we do as well.
0: How do you help the communicate? Like when it comes to a four-year-old, you talk about helping four-year-olds in, in family therapy. Where where do, how do you, where does the military child uh, come to play in that in that type of family therapy?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, sometimes it's parenting skills for the parents. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's helping. You can do cognitive behavioral therapy with a four-year-old, right? Like learning to label um, emotions, like rather than, you know, kids tantrum. And they all do sometimes. Like even we do sometimes as adults. Right. But sometimes that's about not being able to like effectively describe what's happening for you. Like what's, what's upsetting you or what you need in that moment. And that's something that you can work on even with four year olds, you know? So a lot of this comes down to, and you, and parents can learn to help kids do that too. Cause like sometimes, you know, with the tantrum, you, you might just walk away (laughs) and that's effective but sometimes you you need to like model how to talk to a kid about uh, or to talk about feelings and help kids learn to do that thing so again that comes down to parenting skills teaching the child particular communication skills um
0: there's there's class there's classes that are labeled communications but what you get a lot of times is uh like marketing communications or or Different modes, like technical modes, like through the, you know, spoken word or writing or, you know, you don't you don't get how to communicate. You go, you get the what is. Exactly. So
1: when I say communication, I'm talking about like, how do you resolve a dispute with your spouse, you know, or your partner? And, um yeah. and, and it's very helpful to learn those skills. It really helps build a relationship and things. And people shouldn't feel bad for not knowing how to do it because if you're not taught it. And it's not modeled to you necessarily. How in the world would you know how to do it? You just, you know.
0: Trial and error and, and experience and and based on what you saw, I guess, as a child, you know, really.
1: Right. right. Which isn't always a great model for a no, lot of people.
0: No, no. <laughs> no, not always. Yeah. Not. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, mm-hmm. Interesting. That is very interesting. That You know, it's like uh, we talk about all the, all the things that you, that you should be taught in high school, you know, uh, whether when it comes to you know, personal financial stability or I never, I, I haven't thought about like interpersonal communication skills, uh, right. type of t- class. Very interesting.
1: How we have a good relationship. It's never taught.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Doctor, what's, what's one thing that you learned during your time in the military that you apply to what you do today?
1: Oh, God! It was so formative for me. you know there were so many things uh that it's sometimes hard to to describe. so I started out by saying I didn't really know about the military you know i even when I got the scholarship i didn't I didn't have an idea of like what was really in, involved um, i um so I'm gonna say it sounds a little cheesy, but I feel like patriotism is what i what I learned <laughs> like oh. <laughs> About
0: what service really is,
1: sorry, <laughs> no,
0: you're fine, no, you're good hmm. uh, it seems like that hit uh hit a node,
1: yes, yes, it did. I think um, both because the service has been very meaningful to me, but to sorry. <laughs> See the sacrifice that our service members make for this country.
0: Well, Sorry. You, no, you're fine. Don't forget that. You, I mean, you and your family we're, were part of that too, and I appreciate you as well. Thank you. And now, you know, you work for for Easter Seals, but is there is there a veteran nonprofit? or a veteran in the community in the community whom you've worked with, or you've had an an experience with that you'd like to mention.
1: So for, for like client reasons, I can't, you know, say anything specific about people I've worked with. Um, there's definitely, you know, I would say the vast majority of my experiences are deeply rewarding. I, I love, uh, the, the work that I do. I wouldn't, I wouldn't keep doing it if I, if it, if, if it wasn't so meaningful. Um, so there's been numerous numerous people um that I would identify um in that way, and there's so many great veteran organizations um we have a great relationship with um, serving together they do tremendous work boost um boost our families yellow ribbon fund i mean all there's there's so many great organizations and they've been um you know for the most part established and 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 stood up by veterans and military families uh because they they believe in you know giving back to these people that have sacrificed in in their own service
0: yeah gotcha mm-hmm. I, I can tell the passion and i appreciate it i, I do i really do um thank you doctor we've abandoned van den um,
1: or just Doc, you know that. Doc, works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, you
0: know, we've we've covered a little bit of ground today. Is is there anything that I haven't asked that you think it's important to share for anybody that's listening?
1: Um, I, I think the one thing is to really destigmatize seeking mental health care. It's so important, and it's treated like it's different than medical care. Behavioral health care is medical care if you sprained your ankle, you would take care of it. You wouldn't feel like embarrassed or ashamed to go, you know, get an x-ray, get it checked out, wear one of those like weird orthopedic boots, you know, if you need to. And um, I'd really like to see um, seeking behavioral health treatment to be the same way that we think about taking care of ourselves. You know, we think about we, you know, if you have diabetes, you check your blood sugar, you take medication you need to do, and you don't, nobody feels embarrassed about that. Or if you have high blood pressure, yeah. that um, you do it. If, or if something, you have a weird mole, you go get it checked out that we really should be like recognizing if you've got stress and things are happening, go get it checked out.
0: Yeah, or if it just comes into being, uh, e- even, even when, when it comes to physical health, we talk about just getting an annual checkup. Go get exactly. your annual checkup. You know, uh, right? And you're right. We don't we don't think about mental health in that way,
1: right? It doesn't even get called like you know. We talk about going to the doctor. It just it gets like siloed off as it's like something separate from medical care. It is medical care. It's part of our overall wellness, just like an annual, annual physical.
0: Getting out of the military, I was missing this camaraderie. It's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand. I still had the anger, I still had the addictions, but we didn't talk about that. It came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go go to the VA. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people, because it takes true strength to ask for help. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. I thank doc for taking the time to come on board in the battle you can also find more information about dr vanderbrook at www.easterseals.com forward slash dcmdva forward slash our hyphen programs forward slash a-n-n-e-k-e hyphen v-a-n-d-e-n-b-r-o-e-k This week's Born in the Battle Veteran of the Week came from one of you via an email that was sent in to podcast at va.gov. Pat Mickelmoyle writes, I would like to nominate my father, Gerald Mickelmoyle, as Veteran of the Week. He died in March of this year in 2021 at the age of 91 and was the last surviving Air Force U-2 pilot of the 11 who flew missions over Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Pat, I couldn't get into the bio as it must have been a DOD-only site or something, uh, but I did find one. Uh, This bio of Gerald was provided by the Herald Tribune and reads as follows, Gerald Michelmoyle left McCook, Nebraska to enter the Air Force in 1951 and became a pilot. By July of 1957, he graduated with honors as a U-2 pilot from the squadron's officer school. His work flying reconnaissance flights over hostile lands led to his assignment to fly sorties over Cuba during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, and he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. In an interview with Sarasota Magazine, Mickel Moyle recently stated, I'll never forget President Kennedy telling me eyeball to eyeball. I'll never be able to thank you enough for bringing back those pictures and allowing me to peacefully settle the crisis. During the Cold War, he flew reconnaissance missions over the USSR, China, and North and South Vietnam. His career gave him three tours at SAC headquarters and two tours at the Pentagon. During the Cold War, he was frequently the officer in charge for the Looking Glass, that provided nuclear readiness in a command and control center in the sky. His leadership promoted him to the base and then wing commander positions of the missile bases uh, F.E. Warren and Malmstrom, respectively. He rounded, out, he rounded out his career with a final tour at the Pentagon as the Deputy Director of Operations at the Joint Chiefs of Staff, where he earned the rank of Brigadier General. As he yearned for New Horizons, he thought this was a great time to say thanks and signora, because he achieved two of his lifelong dreams, to be a pilot and to become a general in the Air Force. His final day of active duty was July 1st, 1981. Gerald spent a second career as one of his real estate company's most successful real estate agents, helping young people buy their first homes when the country had double-digit inflation and home loan rates, and a third career as an office manager for a cardiac rehab medical clinic. He retired with his first wife, Patty, who unfortunately has also since passed away. Roadrunners International, which is an association that preserves the history of aviation pioneers and programs that developed the U-2 and other programs during the Cold War, also have a nice write-up of Gerald Micklemoyle with an attached letter that then Captain Micklemoyle left for his wife the night before leaving for the Cuban Missile Mission. It's great stuff. Air Force veteran Gerald Micklemoyle. We honor his service. Ready. Hey! That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, pretty much any podcatching app, not a phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, Pinterest, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast or any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song and was written by Marine veteran Mark Mill Kilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We got to get them one way or the other machine. Girl. Firefight bullets fly. Day night brain. Simplified. Don't campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a seven, six, two round. That'll cut them down in an instant. Trigger to the tune of falling brass, full benefits and a purple heart, and a Russian-made bullet in my back. Raining down dead, punching that clock. Get them boys, I'm laying down, cover machine gunner. Bullets fly, day and night, rain. Simmer do or die, another campaign we go, lock and load, 331, lug a thousand rounds, and I ain't bringing back one.